so I have the people with GrubTubs here with me. First of all, introduce yourselves again. Yeah. So I'm Robert uh, with GrubTubs, um, more the technical side. His name is Robert Olivier. And I'm Robert Dayton Allen, and I'm more of the communication side. And uh, whereas Robert really brings a lot of the technical background, mm -hmm. uh, I've got more of the, the community background here in Austin. So it's been a really good fit. So tell me how GrubTub started. Bring me down to the very beginning. Oh, uh, 1999? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to really predate GrubTub quite a bit. <laughs> yeah. Well, but in 1999, there was an argument between my dad and his sister. So as most siblings will argue profusely, uh, that was the same case between my dad and, his, and my aunt. And so basically, my dad was engineering, was looking at all the engineering solutions to get rid of food waste. Mm -hmm. And anaerobic digestion, right. all kinds of, you know, static pile aeration, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they all take weeks, uh, really, to do the entire process correctly. And so he's looking at everything and he's complaining and says, well, you know, this all takes too long. We need to find a way to speed it up. And my, his sister goes, what are you talking about? I compost, it's gone in a day. And he goes, no, here's an engineering manual. This takes weeks. What you're talking about is not possible. She goes, yes, it is. Let's put something in my compost bin. So she, went, she lived in Louisiana, so she put something in there. Lo and behold, the next day my bag goes back and everything's gone. Mm -hmm. So he immediately starts blaming raccoons. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and says, oh, this is not possible. So he secures everything down and puts wire mesh around it. And they put something in again, and the next day everything's gone. And now my dad's like, okay. And he goes and looks and digs in there, and he sees these larvae eating everything that is thrown in there. So he goes up to his sister and goes, see, I'm right, it's not composting. <laughs> and she goes, well, wait a second, that's my compost pile. Right. And so we then sent the species off to Texas A&M, Okay. and got them analyzed and said, give us all the literature that you have on this species. So the species was identified as black soldier fly, or Metsuriculusens, and we got two papers on how to kill them. Okay. And that's when we started realizing that there's something wrong with you know, how we conduct entomology. Mm -hmm. Because for one, this was not a pest species. Um, and then that's probably the reason there were only two papers on Right, because nobody had to eradicate them; they just happened to be eradicated by something. Okay. Um, but commonly known, these are native to North America, mm -hmm. and um, so they were here before Christopher Columbus was here. And they also have been known as the privy fly. So back in the day when we had outdoor toilets, they were already recycling alongside of humans the entire time. Right, um, <laughs> exactly. However, what we've noticed is that the species have a ferocious appetite. So they double their weight every day and they eat twice as much as they do. To clarify, the, the larvae have a voracious appetite. The adults, one of the reasons why they're not a pest species, not a vector for disease, is that the adults don't really eat. They, they become adults, they mate, they lay their eggs, and they expire. So unlike traditional pest species flies that go from you know manure to your plate to the garbage can to your Spreading disease, these flies don't have that risk. That's good. Yeah, so the larvae are hungry as heck. Well, and also is is that right before they go into the flying adult stage, 
they have the most fat and stored energy in them, which makes them an ideal candidate for feed. Okay. Because they're, when they're full of reserves and proteins and fats, that's exactly what you want. And so we have been looking at ways of finding them. And initially we had a factory system okay. that wanted to do that. And that's what everyone in the world is doing, is they all do this factory system. But then we realized everyone, but like this is still a very small niche industry, uh, very early yeah, in the days. Yeah, they're now, but they're raising yeah. tens of yeah. tens of dollars. That's what it's 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 yeah. and, and so, uh, what you are seeing now is everybody is doing a factory, mm -hmm. and what we realized is in talking to farmers, that's not what they want. They don't want another product at the feed store. What we also realize is that a tiny, I told you they eat, right? Mm -hmm. So a tiny little vial will actually become a bag of feed in 14 days. Lots of little tiny babies. Two weeks later, they yes. grow into these big bag rubs. So we can ship these vials anywhere in the country, but I cannot ship a bag of feed anywhere in the country. Right. Even if I, you know, I've become the prime seller with Amazon, right. they're still not going to be logistically cheap right. enough to sell 50,000 right. dollars. Well, that's where the entrepreneurship aspect comes in. That's because, right. you know, for all the entrepreneurs watching, I mean, I'm sure they're very curious to figure out, you know, how that sort of began as a business model for you. Well, the business model first was the engineering model, which is make a factory. Okay. But then when we started looking then when we started losing money, mm -hmm. right? right? Yeah. Um, we started learning that doing cows are not raised in factories, nor are ducks or chickens. They're raised in farm infrastructure that most farmers can make for themselves. And as a factory, it's highly regulated with safety standards and costs like $150 a square foot to deploy with all the equipment in it. Mm -hmm. Farmers make barns themselves for maybe 20 or 25 bucks a square foot. Okay. And yes, granted, a tornado might come along and that farm might not be there at the end of the day. But at that price point, what you're realizing is, is that, you know, when we are farming food, it, it, it's not the same infrastructure as a huge factory. And so that's where Grubtubs really had their aha moment is saying, we're doing it wrong. Farming insects in factories in order to have something that competes with soy and corn that's just in a field for nothing right. doesn't make sense. Okay. What if we can actually work with farmers so they can grow their own feed mm. on their property? Well, if you then put that idea out there, well, which farmers? And it turns out the ones that are closest to the food waste. Okay. Because these insects that we're farming need feed as well. And if we buy feed to make feed, we kind of defeated the purpose. So right. using or repurposing food in order to become insects is really nature's ecological system. If I go into the rainforest, I don't find a big compost pile. Right. I find every other critter taking those nutrients and reutilizing and repurposing. So we wanted to repurpose nutrients just like nature does. And in order to do that effectively, we figured we need to optimize the conditions for this insect, but at the same time, make it easy for the farmer that it's just a really low maintenance piece of equipment 
And so that's exactly what we've been working on. And there's a good point there at the end. Uh, and this isn't something that is, is completely unknown to a lot of the farmers that we've talked to. Mm -hmm. A lot of them are aware of the species and the, the potential, but what a lot of them have found is that it's really difficult to do this if, you're, if you don't understand the biology, yeah. if you don't understand okay. how the species works, and it's really easy to do it wrong. And so for a lot of farmers, they, when we started talking to them, especially here in Austin, you know, they were really excited about this. They knew about it, they heard of it, or knew someone who had tried it, but they didn't want to do it and risk it doing it the wrong way. And so what we're able to do is come in and simplify it, make it easy. You don't have to be an entomologist. You don't have to have spent years understanding the husbandry of this species to utilize it as a feed resource. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We do that. So for example, when you buy a chick from a commercial poultry operation, a grower or a hatchery, you don't need to learn which ones are male and female. Very hard thing to do, right? Okay. So same thing with what we do is we make sure that we have the entire colony, the parent colony, completely healthy, completely maintained, up to par. We keep all of the conditions the way that they should be without having to get a farmer to become a biologist, to become an entomologist. Right. So that for or him, engineer, a vial of hatchlings is all he needs to mix with the, the food waste. That's it. That's it. In, right. a, in a special type of container that we optimize for the insects. Right. So so it has air and stuff. And we yeah, we handle the engineering and the biology. Yeah. And the farmer's able to, with a very minimal amount of labor, really offset their costs in a drastic way and provide something that's I think we'll, we'll see as time goes on, is really definitely better for their animals. Yeah. So explain sort of the cost-benefit component of it. Can you hit the next button on that slide? Yeah. <laughs> if you're going to do that. Uh, yep. This, and one more, one more, one more. So this is Ty and Sarah. They're at West Pole Farm. And they had 300 birds like in the first slide. But they really, the USDA allows them to go up to 3,000 birds. Okay. They bought organic feed because they were big, strong believers in good food for their community from this feed store. This is $8,000 a month. Which leaves them, well, now they got so many eggs to sell that they can't just sell them at $5 at the farmer's market anymore because, you know, that's, it's about 20 eggs per chicken per month. So you do the dozen, it's a lot of dozens of eggs. Anyway, so their net farm income is about Okay. We slashed this by four grand. Half. Half. That's incredible. Then their net farm income goes to five thousand right. dollars. Now this gives Ty incentive to quit his job at Whole Foods, which now is Amazon, and to become a full-time young farmer. That's what's been missing in this country is young people who want to grow good food have to compete with commodity labor that basically pays farmers four to eight cents a dozen. Mm -hmm. So basically that's exactly what he's making here. Mm -hmm. Then it's not worth it. But if a guy like Ty could earn, you know, $5,000 a month or at least a dollar a dozen, right. not because he's charging you more, right. but because he is integrating his nutrients, he's getting them from, for, for free from the restaurants who need to get rid of it too. So restaurants pay us to take the food and deliver it to Thai instead of dumping it at a landfill. Right. That's isn't, it. Isn't it like, I don't know the exact statistic, but 40% of 
of food waste goes into a landfill or something along those lines? Ninety-eight percent of food waste goes to landfill is not recovered, but of all the food grown, forty percent becomes okay. food waste. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. Also, Which is a value absurd yeah. in my opinion. Go go back real fast because you know this is where where we're working to get times there too. You know, with, with, with that slash price. This is where they are today, mm -hmm. and this is where a lot of the farmers can also. It's a hobby. It's and here's why. For them, the cost of their feed is so much that when they sell the eggs, the eggs are profitable. Right. Even if they're marking those up high, uh, you know, for uh, a farm that grows fruits and vegetables and also has poultry, the eggs are a way to get people out to your farm to buy your produce, which is where you make your profits. Okay. But. For them, there's no incentive to increase their block size since every egg is value neutral. Okay. Once we slash that feed cost, now you have profitable eggs. So you have that incentive to mm -hmm. increase the block size because you're making money on every bird now instead of just using it as a way to get people out there. And so that's what's really going to unlock the potential for people who are, you know, doing this on a small scale and want to make it profitable so that they can scale. Mm -hmm. And the city of Boston is really behind getting more chicken farmers, you know, getting more people doing backyard chickens, really? getting more people oh, yeah. growing it on urban farms, and just being more uh, efficient with the nutrients and the resources we have in our local food shed uh, to get more good healthy food into the community. And so this is a really good way for us to make that more cost effective for younger startup farmers like Kai and Sarah, you know, who are... And I'm going to change it here for, yeah. Yeah, this is what we're talking about. Yeah, it's 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 a really. I think for us, when we started seeing how much this can impact farmers, that's where it's yeah. like really getting excited. And, yeah. and that's it. So you lower the feed cost immediately. He can have more birds, and immediately has a livable farm income. Right. Right. And the thing is, is that it doesn't matter if you have somebody in Nicaragua doing this. The thing is, he's here, and so the only way that he can benefit of lower feed cost is tying into our food waste. Mm -hmm. And so it's truly like, it's like a government subsidy, but not in taxes, but in nutrients that we're sending to our farmers so that they can come back and grow good food for our community. But what's the point if a farmer, you know, if it's so expensive for a farmer to feed his animals, he's not gonna feed his family. Right. And so none of us are going to do this if we can't feed our families first. Of course. So there's no good food without, you know, a profitable farm. And so that's where Grub Tubs really hopes to make a difference is, is this is what changes the dynamic. You know, for the last, there's a, a thing that I am starting to realize and people don't, people have taken waste for granted. But one of the things that we need to realize is that waste if there is waste in any system, even exporting a recyclable to China is still getting rid of the waste. But if there is waste within a town, a city, a state, a country, at some point you lose. Big time. You, you lose in a, either a natural resource or you lose when that natural resource becomes less abundant and then you have to go to another country to go get it for the same price point. So what we have done with agriculture is our waste has literally shifted agriculture away from our communities. And so we have now been able to exploit fossil fuels in order to make fertilizer, which is a great resource, but when then an oil price spike hits, we're starting to realize, oops, 
maybe this is not the way to do it. And so by finding waste and reutilizing, repurposing, it's not just the good thing to do. It's actually a powerful resource. And that resource, by allowing these farmers to tap back into that, can then bring things back that we have lost, which is a livable farm income. Right. And so you don't have to be the biggest environmentalist to see right. when something truly makes ecological sense, it also starts making economic sense. Well, that's what my whole thing is all about, is the eco-capitalist way of thinking. Because if you can find a way to make it make financial sense and environmental sense, then why would you not do it? I mean, you don't have to be a tree-hugging hippie to, to understand that. And I think a lot of businesses are starting to get that, especially when you put financials like this in front of them. And then when we start looking at the creator awards, it, yeah. is, it makes total sense that one of the top two awards were, uh, I'm not saying that they were because they were from Austin, but two of the three candidates that won the scale award are really tapping into the circular economy. Of course. And, you know, um, Re3D is doing exactly that. They are taking plastic that we throw away and we reprint an object that we can use today. Right. And so, you know, that's, that's, these are the ideas that right now are emerging out of the Austin tech culture. And you're seeing is that the community is just loving it. And so it's not just technology, it's not just, um, you know, a business plan anymore. It's really talking about a community, a community of farmers, a community of good food, a community of happy animals. Because one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is they say, well, we're, we're against meat and, you know, and, and there's, I, I'm a big Michael Pollan fan, so I really feel that, yes, we should eat more vegetables. It has a wide range of benefits. But at the same time, we're looking at sustainable, agriculture should be an ecosystem. And that means that, you know, a lot of, even our organic vegetables are still fertilized with manure from animals. And a lot of people don't realize that. And so there is a way to balance the equation. But when 70% of our agricultural acreage in this country is dedicated to animal feed, we know we're out of balance. And so this is a way to create animal feed without soy. Mm -hmm. and minimizing the amount of corn. So our feed has no soy in it. None. Okay. Because the protein and the calories in the insects outcompete soy. If I put a chicken in a field with soy, what does it eat? Soy. No. No. <laughs> the bugs. <laughs> the bugs. Okay. Right. It's not part of their natural diet. And well, so... Robert's not even really diving into fish field. Because that's the other part of our big livestock feed. The way that we're getting the proteins and the fats is soy or fish meal. And you know, chickens don't naturally eat fish either. They eat mm -hmm. insects. So there's, there's, there's so many more benefits as you kind of peel back the layers on this idea and you're talking about the compost. The fact that this process also provides the farmer with really high quality nutrients for the compost. So there's all these layers the more you get into it. So is there a way for people besides farmers to get used? I mean, could this be implement, implemented in yeah. the city? So 
I, I actually had a colony in my backyard for what, like six, eight months, mm -hmm. and it was I was fairly hands off, and it survived. Now, the issue on the, on the really small scale is that again, if you don't understand the biology, if you don't understand the the entomology, mm -hmm. then it is really easy to let it get out of hand and collapse. Mm -hmm. So I kind of got lucky, but I think there's some potential in scaling it down that we're really excited to explore. Yeah, and I invented a home and garden product called the Biopod. The Biopod? Yeah, B-I-O-P-O-D, like iPod. And um, we, we sold a lot, we, we sold a lot of those uh, specifically, and um, people were using them to feed a small flock of chickens. And now in Austin, there's an ordinance that is sponsoring uh, people to have backyard chickens and they're giving what a $70 rebate? Yeah, something like yeah. that. Rebates for people that are, are buying coops and yeah. buying really? chickens. Yeah, absolutely. Huh. Kind of love Austin. Come on. Yeah, <laughs> I, 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 do. I do. I do. It is incentivize people to take some of their economics into their own hands. Mm -hmm. If I'm a backyard chicken farmer, now I'm literally growing my own eggs. And if I can do that through my own recycling, my own nutrients mm -hmm. in some way, that's economically beneficial and nutritionally beneficial for the whole community. So how else has Austin as a city played a role in this, or do you see them playing a role in yeah, this? Yes, so, I mean, going back uh, you know, to a year ago, and this is, I think, when really the ball really started rolling, um, we were introduced to each other through a mutual friend, Catalina Unger, who's an industrial designer. Um, she's actually, did she work, she worked with you yeah. in the past with other soldier fly rearing devices, and mm -hmm. uh, she, she has a mealworm rearing device that will be uh, coming out this year. It's really exciting. But she puts in touch because I was here in Austin looking for someone who understood the soldier flies because Austin has a lot of ways that, as a city, you know, the city's zero waste initiatives. Right, 2040. Absolutely. They're not yeah. only, uh, you know, they're not only saying, look, companies are going to have to start diverting to organic waste, but they're also incentivizing those companies to become compliant in this country, right. to voluntarily, you know, create their own systems. And the city's really, encouraging, yeah, they're encouraging yeah. businesses to get creative with how they can mm -hmm. do that successfully. Um, and so the, the environment was really bright here for this kind of idea. And this was something that Robert had been working on in California, Hawaii, and so he, he was really able to bring all the pieces here to Austin that we needed to, to get things going. You know, and it was a few months later, we, we did the reverse pitch with ARR. A few months later, uh, we joined Harback, Texas here. Mm -hmm. A few months later, we worked. So it's, you know, it's, it's been really great, again, seeing all those different folks from yeah. Austin, you know, validating, yes, this, this does make sense here in Austin. Let's try it out. So let's talk a little bit more about WeWork and how that relationship started and like how this has all come to be because you know it's a very big deal right now winning for Yeah, and it's not over. Right, right. <laughs> it's just now it's here's a right. So obviously the relationship with WeWork actually started at the city. I got okay. an email from Natalie Betts that uh, works at the city saying, Hey Walker, you should apply to this. Hmm. Um, and she's really great about, like, you know, there, there's a really active community for zero waste, for okay. waste recycling, and so folks like, you know, Break It Down, Compost Pillars, and Games My Gosh, mm -hmm. these are folks that we, you know, we get to meet and, and interact with around town, and the city's really active in engaging with these entrepreneurs and businesses and mm -hmm. saying, you know, let's figure out 
how the city is going to how to do this. Do this. Yeah. Let's, let's work together on this. And so when we then went forward, uh, I couldn't probably have won because I'm a little bit scientific. Mm -hmm. And so it's hard for people sometimes to understand where my mind is at when I really get excited about stuff. Yeah, I hear you. So what I had to do is I really mm -hmm. had to learn how to talk about what matters. And it's in that quest that we've sat down with people in the community that matter. So before we could even win at WeWork, it came down to knowing your customer, which in our case is uh, farmers and restaurants. Very different people. Very. And, yeah. But they still are enamored with each other because, right. you know, the foodies want the farmers and the farmers really want the foodies to pay top dollar and so uh, farm to table has really really taken a strong foothold here in Austin. Yes it has. So when we started putting it together the story went from insects and how to do this and mm -hmm. technically this is the engineer profile that we should follow it and this is the amount of capital we should allocate to a story about you know it would only take this much to accomplish this much for local farmers. And once we started twisting that story, we started noticing that people got really excited. And if you saw me pitch at the reverse pitch, there was one time I mentioned the word insect in there and the entire audience kind of went, huh? <laughs> and then I just kept going and talking yeah. about farmers because, you know, I had to make the disclosure with the insects in it. Obviously, but the insects are at the start, really through the means to the end. Yes. Right. That's right. the about this. They're just part of the process. And right. so one of the other breakthroughs that we had that's not in insects is in this. This might not sound much, but this is basically our first generation of grub tubs. Okay. And what we've realized is that restaurants can carry this. This can go in an awesome food that's truck. Yeah. to the back of the kitchen. So it doesn't matter if it's a, if it's a restaurant that's over 5,000 square feet. The thing is, is nobody is going to be moving 55 gallon compost pails. Also, this is completely hermetically sealed, right? And what that allows it to do is there is no odor. So this is not a waste receptacle. Wow. This is a food repurposing storage device. Sounds benign, and the, but the difference is huge because one you put next to the dumpster, this one you can keep in your cold storage until we're ready to come pick it up. And that means that our animals are getting fresher nutrients with less safety risks associated with it. So it is important that we are able to provide a quality nutrient to both our animals and our insects that have been organic fed to our animals. And it starts by having something manageable. So it doesn't seem like much that, you know, this is food waste, but think about what's not here. There's no recyclable liner. Mm -hmm. um, there is a very easy conform system, so there's not a lot of weight. People don't realize that food waste is extremely heavy. Right. right. It, it, it doesn't take the big volume in the dumpster, but it can easily add 80% of the weight. Yeah. And then another thing that you don't realize is that if you take this out from a restaurant, 
what you are left with doesn't have to be picked up frequently. It's not smelling. It's not smelling anymore. Right. So that means for so rest. So that means that the rate of recycling is going to go up when you manage this correctly. And the best way to manage it is to not go to waste. Because once you waste, you lose. Right? So without wasting, but by repurposing, we are able to connect our cities with our farmers, support our local farmers that then make good food for us, that then can go back into this. That is a circular economy, that is zero waste, and that is what Austin, you know, it's the blue dot and the red state, is so embracing and will be pioneering that because of it. And that's what you saw at the Creator Awards. So can people buy these? We don't buy them, it's a service. Oh, yeah. it's just a service. So yeah, how, so how do I sign up with some restaurant? Uh, so we are... Obviously now have funds to redo our website, right. <laughs> but multi most importantly is we can contract out with the restaurant that we will give you completely professionally cleaned, safe times. New clean ones. You get yeah. clean ones every time that we take the old ones back. Yeah. And you know one of the, the beauties of, of what we're talking about in not using waste, don't let it become waste. Mm -hmm. This is the food that the chefs are in the back taking fresh and turning into the food that is served. So everything that's not used is just unused or, or inevitable, right. but it's not waste yet. And that's the beauty of capturing it then. In well, yeah, why pay to throw it into a landfill? Exactly. I mean, you're all and why let it get infected with flies yeah. and, and stains? I mean, yeah. there's an endless list of negatives, but so, so this lets us recapture it. And, mm -hmm. and Take it right away. So, could you hypothetically do this in a food truck area? Yes. Yeah, and, and it would be the thing where we would want to have multiple food trucks. Right. That's all we, all so, you only have to make one stop That's instead right. of, you know, eight. And luckily, Austin is a city with lots of those little lots. food truck courts and those right. little areas where there's lots of restaurants. Huh. So, this becomes manageable logistically. Okay. And that so because we can do all the biology in the world. Right. If we don't have the logistics supporting a complex ecosystem like a city, it's not going to happen. Correct. And so we found that that's really the breakthrough with us. And the only way, and really to point this out to a lot of the startups here, the only way we figured that out was through customer discovery. Mm -hmm. That is going into the back of the kitchens and realizing that 55 gallons on wheels, even on wheels, is a mess. Oh, yeah. 55 no, gallon drums on a food truck, forget it. And it's, yeah, they weigh over 250 yeah. pounds when they're full. So you just... Yeah, and even the places that, that were going to go about composting, mm -hmm. they, they can't put fish guts and meat and dairy and eggs yeah. into something and let it sit by the dumpster for a day or two and get smelly when their tables are 30 right. feet away from the dumpster. Yep. So it's, they've got a solution that allows them to not throw that away, but not, yeah. you know, they, they need to be rewarded for that, not disincentivized. One of the things that GrubTubs is really excited about is we're going to take on the challenge of making Granny Street less smelly. <laughs> That's excellent. It's a tall order. Yeah, most wasteful in general. I yeah, think rainy, rainy streets are perfect. Exactly. Like, that at. I mean, well, everyone smelled rainy. Yeah, right. Well, 
Yeah, that right. back alley going towards the Van Zandt Hotel, that's horrible. And I, you know, I was coming from the waste industry, I actually didn't notice at first. But, you know, I was dating this girl and she goes, oh, it stinks here. And I go, oh, we need to solve that. Yeah. Because nobody wants that. Nobody wants to be on a patio, listen to music, and have to smell a garbage dumpster. Right. Of course. But if the dumpster doesn't smell because the food is in here, then suddenly the frequency of work for that dumpster, yeah. the fact that you can put a recycling dumpster next to that dumpster, smaller dumpsters, all of that becomes possible if they don't stink. Well, and, and because we're taking the really we're taking the nutrients that nobody else really wants to deal with, and we don't want all of the things that everybody else wants. So, for a traditional composting operation that has a big hot composting, they're going to want the compostable silverware, the napkins, the post-consumer waste, the carpet, those pizza boxes, that kind of stuff that we don't want in our system. That's exactly what they want, and that's different than the recyclables, the aluminum, glass, mm -hmm. yeah. which is different than the trash. Those really, if, if you get everything else out of the system, that plastic film, those few small things that can't be recovered any other way. So adding this segment into that system that wasn't there also before really allows the others to be more efficient. Mm -hmm. So one of my last questions for you, for you is just. You know, where do you see this in five years, ten years? I mean, I, I think the sky's the limit for you, honestly. I think this is something great. What is your vision? Well, um, honestly, you can go big. You know, you don't have well, to. I, just looking at the numbers, there's within the restaurant grocery store sector, there's about 25 million tons a year of unrecycled food waste. Okay, so that can actually support about six billion dollars in feed that has an insect component really? into it yes and that actually would support over 200 million chickens laying eggs which is almost the size of the entire flock in the united states okay so we are just scratching the surface is it all going to be chicken no it's going to be we like to work with chicken because uh it's easy to use a bird in order mm. to eat an insect, in order to lay an egg. Right. Um, but we can do this for meat birds as well. Okay. We can do this also for, um, you know, if you like pulled pork here in Austin from our barbecue places, definitely pigs are great candidates. And it's one of the reasons that we're now going to be experimenting between two types of grub tubs, a green one that only has vegetable trimmings. And what we can do is we can easily add some fermentation starter. And then in 10 days, the farmer can feed this straight up to his animals. There is no insect stuff. And then we'll have another tub that has a, that would be red. And this can contain the meats and the eggs and the eggshells and everything else. And this goes to insect without problem. And then those insects can legally be fed to chickens and pigs. Mm. And so by even directly going as quickly as possible from you know, a bad food that can't be used anymore, leftover, to feed for animals increases how much good food that we can grow in our community. So not everything has to go through uh, the bottleneck of feeding it to an insect. Mm -hmm. But because of our different logistical model, we're now exploring different techniques that are just as, you know, opportunistic 
So we really don't know yet where we're going to be, but what I do know is that food waste is never going to be the same. Correct. And uh, we might piss off some food waste haulers um, because we don't allow it to become food waste. Mm -hmm. It's not a stinky business anymore. It becomes a resource. And it becomes a 